Good morning. This year is going to be a unique year because it will be the only time that we have a spring and a fall event like we're having this year. What's happening this weekend is something that we had planned before we began our equipped workshop, but in the future, the equipped workshop is going to check so many of the boxes of what we need as a congregation to strengthen and grow as the Lord wants us to, that what you're going to have the opportunity to be a part of this weekend is the last of its kind in a manner of speaking, at least for a while. We are going to have a workshop that we're calling Engaging Everyone for Eternity. It's a church strengthening workshop. And it builds off of the theme that we have had as a congregation for 2023. How important it is for all of us to find a place in which we can be involved in helping God's kingdom to grow and that in view of the fact that this life is not it, this is in preparation for true life, eternal life, and that is in eternity. In this church strengthening seminar, we have asked someone to come and speak who we believe is uniquely qualified and equipped to help us in engaging us in the various areas where we need to grow as a church. Our brother's name is David Sproul, and let me tell you this about him. He is always consummately prepared, and he is a very dynamic speaker in his approach. But he's also one who has accumulated a lot of experience to help us in the ways that we need to grow. And when we talk about a church strengthening seminar, if you've ever been to one, this will be my first. The uniqueness of this particular idea is that the church is made up of individuals. And as individuals, we need to grow. And the stronger that we grow as individuals, the stronger that we're going to grow as a church. And when we think about it from that aspect, and some of the topics that David is going to approach on Friday night and then on Saturday morning, it reminds me that I'm not the Bible class teacher that I could be. That I am not the leader that I want to be. That I'm not the soul winner that I need to be. And I'm not the servant or the worker for Christ that I hope that I will be. He's going to be dealing with all of those subjects in order as we go through the weekend. And then to top it all off on Sunday morning, we don't have what we call officially a plum full Sunday anymore. If you will, write it in your mind, kind of scratch through that and put friends and family day. That's what this is going to be. And I know that you're going to want to have your friends and family to hear him as he speaks to us some well-prepared lessons on Bible study, on what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be part of a healthy family, our family at home. I mean, something that could be more practical, I don't know what it would be. And so as we think about what's going to take place, this seminar is going to help us to be the church of our Lord and the people of God at Lehman Avenue that we know we need to be. In just a few moments, Hiram is going to be talking about the part that we play in cooperation with our Lord. If you'll notice Dwight in the reading that he did a moment ago so well, it has one of the most identifiable passages in all the book of Ephesians. We are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. That tells me that God has a part and I have a part. In a few moments we're going to be looking at our part. 
And as a part of that, we're going to be looking in our Bibles in Ephesians chapter 4 at a passage that's very important to our vision statement and our strategic plan of who we want to be to get to where we are now, to where God wants us to be, and all that that involves. But I thought what we would do is to spend a few moments and go into the chapter before that. So often we talk about how the book of Ephesians breaks into two parts. There is a teaching or a doctrinal part that talks about all that God does. That's chapters 1 through 3. And then the second part is that practical part that says what we do, our part, in response to what God has done. But I want you to notice in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1 that the Apostle Paul says, For this reason... Anytime we see a statement like that, it's good for us to step back and ask a question like, well, when he says this, what does he mean? For what reason? And the reason goes back into chapter 2, and that is that all of us, no matter who we are, no matter what we look like, no matter what our age, no matter what our education, no matter what our financial position, no matter what our moral foundation that we are coming from, that all of us can be in a single dwelling place of God through the Spirit of God. And so I want us to look at God's purpose. Before we can look at our part, I want us to see three things that are demonstrated here in Ephesians chapter 3 that is part of God's purpose. First of all, His purpose is to reveal the mystery. You know, here is a word that's used throughout the New Testament to refer to something so important that was in God's mind that was a part of God's purpose. You know, there have been some great mysteries in history, haven't there? Who built Stonehenge? What happens to all of those planes and those ships in the Bermuda Triangle? Whatever happened to Amelia Earhart? I don't know about you, but I like a good mystery writer, whether we're talking about Agatha Christie or Edgar Allan Poe or M. Night Chalamet. But let me tell you, there is nobody who can write a mystery like God. And what we see is, is that God had a mystery that he unlocked that was not revealed at the beginning of time. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 16, verse 25 and 26, that it was hidden in the mind of God from all eternity. But it's been made known through the prophetic scriptures for the obedience of the faith according to the commandment of God. It's not like God was trying to trick us. God wanted us, if our hearts and our minds were open, He wanted us to know what was in His mind for all humanity. In fact, when Jesus came and walked on this earth, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 11, He speaks to His apostles and He says, Unto you it was made known the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but it was not that He didn't want everybody else to know about the kingdom. Jesus had been talking about the kingdom, but they already had their minds made up about what they thought that it was. When we get to our text in Ephesians chapter 3, we learn more about this mystery and what Paul says about it. He says that, first of all, that this mystery was made known by revelation. It was such that we could not figure it out on our own. God had to unlock it for us. And in His mercy, He does just that. And He goes on to say that this mystery was made known by reading. You know, God has made us to be comprehenders. And some things are easier for us to know than others are. But Paul says, you can understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ by reading. 
You know, all of us probably fall into one category or the other. You're probably either a history English person or you're a math science person. You can look at my report cards and see that I was the first kind. I was not the last kind. And I always have this envy for people who naturally pick up math and science. It just ain't me. But when I think about how I ever was able to get through and graduate... I had to dig down and I had to study a little harder to grasp the concepts of those humanities like math and science. There are some things that are easy for us to understand in God's overall revelation, but some are harder. But by reading, we can understand all of it. And then he also tells us that this mystery was made known for a reason. God is revealing this truth That we can study and understand that we are fellow heirs, we are fellow members, we are fellow partakers. God wants us to know that in a place that we'll speak about in just a moment, all of us have a part that we can play and that God needs us to play. So when we think about our theme, engaging everyone for eternity, think the everyone. God has a place for us all. But it was also made known to us by radiance. It's brought to light. Verse 9. When we look under the light of Scripture, we see God's multifaceted wisdom. We see Him as He really is. And we understand that all that we're going to see beyond this, especially when we get to our part, is built upon this mystery being made known. So that when John lays down his pen in Revelation chapter 10 and verse 7, he says that the mystery has been manifested by my servants, the prophets. When we're looking at God's eternal purpose, I want you to see that there is a who. There is a who of God's purpose. And it's made known in the mystery, and that mystery is that all men are saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when we look at God's purpose, I also want us to notice that God's purpose is seen, or was to build, rather, the church. Man, of all books in the New Testament, none lay out the the picture of the church more fully than the book of Ephesians. When we see in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8 through 11, Paul says unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that he should make known the mystery which is hidden in God from the beginning of the ages, but made known through the church according to the eternal purpose of God unto principalities and powers in heavenly places, and it's made known by Jesus Christ the Lord. Paul is saying there are pictures of the church Help you see God's purpose being unfolded. You walk through the book of Ephesians and you see that the church is described as a body. It helps me to see that I'm a part of the body. I have a function as a member of that body and bodies work together. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. But also see the church as being that which is a family. It is the house of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. And so a family works together. We support one another. I see that the church is a temple. And so we're all priests. And we are serving God in that temple. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. I look further and see that the church is a kingdom. And so as I serve my king, I'm going to be obedient to him as a loyal subject. Ephesians 5 and verse 5. I see the church as a bride. And therefore I am to submit to my head. Ephesians 5 and verse 32. And I see the church as an army. And so an army fights against our enemy the devil. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 through 17. 
When we begin to see the church in our text, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8 through 11, we see more about how it shows God's purpose being revealed. God had a set of blueprints. He had building plans. If you see in verse 9 that word administration, it's the idea of a set of arranged plans. It's a fascinating thing, especially if you have architecture in your background, to study and see some of the superlative buildings of the world. There's the Burj Khalifa. It is the tallest building in the world. It is over a half a mile high in the United Arab Emirates. But then we think about it, China holds the distinction for two of the other superlative buildings. There is the Wuhan Greenland Complex. It's a building that cost $4.5 billion to build. And then we think about the New Century facility that is in its total area 18.9 million square feet. But of all of these impressive edifices, only one building was built from eternity. Only one was built by God. And so there is only one of all that was built by an all-powerful and all-knowing God whose plans can never fail, they'll always succeed. And the Apostle Paul is saying that God's purpose is seen in his design for the church, but he's also its builder. Not just the building plans, but the builder is seen in, it is the one who created all things. Colossians will tell us that's Christ. And so we have the one who designed it in his heart, in his mind, perfectly from eternity. And then we have the one who built it. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, Upon this rock I will build my church. The fact that he is deity, he is the Son of God. We also see him as the cornerstone. He says, I'm going to build the church upon me. Ephesians 2, verse 20 and 21. There's a foundation. That is the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. We also see that in Him we have the design. And again, that design is that all of us function. We take our place. We do our part in the body of Christ. As we look at the church, we see its importance to God. God's fingerprints are all over the church. That means the church is as important as the cross. It's as important as the Bible. The church is as important to God. They're inseparably joined. Jesus shed his blood for the church. So as I look at God's purpose and I see my motivation for engaging all of us for eternity, I see that this purpose of God is seen in that he built the church. But you can't read the book of Ephesians without seeing something else that's central to God's purpose. God's purpose is to bless us as we serve Him. When you begin to read the book of Ephesians, you're impressed right off the bat with the fact that all spiritual blessings in heavenly places are in Christ. And then uh, by inspiration, there's a burst of these that's given to us. The blessings of God include the fact that God has set us apart. He's made us holy and we're beloved in His sight. What a blessing that is. He adopted us into His family. He made us accepted in the beloved. There's grace. There's redemption. There's forgiveness. There's an inheritance. 
There's the fact that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. Someone has counted that there's a couple of dozen plus a few spiritual blessings that are lined out for us in the book of Ephesians alone. But just in case we miss anything, go to James 1 and verse 17 and understand that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The blessings are found in Him, but why does God bless us? God blesses us so that we can serve Him. And Paul adds just three more in Ephesians 3, 14-21, which, by the way, is a prayer. And in this prayer, Paul is laying out the purpose of his letter, and the part of that purpose is to see that God, in His purpose, blesses us so that we'll use those blessings for His purpose. One of those is, is He fills us with Himself. How humbling it is to think That God chooses to reside in us. He strengthens our inner man through His Spirit in us. And Christ dwells in our heart through faith. Well, what does that mean? Every challenge that comes, every circumstance that seems bigger than me, I can trust the fact that God is within me. And through that, He is strengthening me. Why? So I can serve Him. Another blessing is is that He loves me like nobody else can. It's hard to adequately describe the love of God. It's so deep you can bathe in it. It's so high it'll lead you all the way to heaven. It's so warm it'll change you into the image of God. When you think about how you can measure the love of God, think about how tall and how long and how high and how low and how broad the love of God is. God fills us up with His love. There's no one who will love us like He loves us. In the highest circumstances of your life, in the lowest circumstances of your life, you can count on the love of God to always be that which is proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. But why does He love us? So that we can serve His purpose. But we also see that He is glorified in and He demonstrates Himself through the church. When we look at verse 20 and 21, we have a doxology there. And we see that to Him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ, world without ages. Amen. When I think about the church, it's part of God's eternal purpose. But the church is full of fallible people. That's because we're fallen people in a fallen world. And it can be easy for us to speak against or to be bitter about the church. But here in this words of praise, at the end of this prayer, is one of many reasons why that we should not feel that way about the church. He is able to do. He is able to do far more. He is able to do exceedingly above. He is able to do beyond what we ask or think. But the humbling part of this is that He chooses to do that through us. And the more we strengthen ourselves and the more that we grow, the more powerfully God can be at work through us and the more powerfully He can be glorified through us. That means that we're His hands, His feet, His eyes, and His mouth in every opportunity and with every responsibility. That means as we reach out and we minister to those in our community, the more effectively that we can do that in every way, the more He's glorified and the more His strength and His power is seen. And when God is strengthening us to be the very best us that we can be, then that helps us to more effectively reach out to those around us. When I look at God's purpose in Ephesians chapter 3, yes, I see the who, Jesus Christ. 
I see the where of God's purpose, and that's in the church. But I also see the why through God's purpose, and that is He blesses us so that we can then turn around and serve Him. It is a humbling thing to think that we have been in God's mind from the eternity before time. Ephesians 1, 4-6 says that very thing. It tells us how God chose us, and that's in Christ. We're not special of ourselves, but we are in Christ. We see when God chose us, and that's from the eternity before time, from the foundation of the world. In that passage, we also see um, why He chose us, and that's in His love. But then we see to what He chose us. We're holy and beloved. We're children, and we're the recipients of His grace. There are no accidents with God. There was a cowboy who went to an insurance agent and he tried to set up a policy. And the insurance agent asked him, saying, have you ever had any accidents? And he thought about it and he said, no. He said, but a mule did kick into my ribs last summer. And he said, a rattlesnake bit me on the ankle a couple of years ago. And the puzzled insurance agent said, but wouldn't you call those accidents? He said, nope, they did it on purpose. You know, there are no accidents with God either. What He does, He does on purpose. And when we think about His purpose, the question is, how do I respond to that? What's my part in response to God's great purpose? Hiram, come preach to us. There are some things that you have to have two parts in order to execute properly. You think about a pair of scissors with only one half, Or if you have a frame, one frame of eyeglasses, you can't see pretty well. One windshield wiper won't clear the windshield well enough for you to look out. There are some things you just have to have two of in order for them to function properly. And the same is true about our relationship to eternal things and salvation. God does have a part, and it's great that Paul leads off with God's part because if he led off with our part first, we might become discouraged and overwhelmed. But the reality is that God has a part to play, and we have a part as well. The book of Ephesians breaks down, as Neil mentioned, into those two halves. The first three chapters talks about God's part from eternity past. But chapters four through six talks about our response to what God has done and the role that we play. And it's important that we see that we need to respond to God properly in order to be pleasing to him in view of all that he's already done for us. If you still have your Bible open to Ephesians chapter three, just notice Ephesians chapter four. And we'll look at verses one through 16 and notice four aspects of our part in engaging everyone for eternity what does God want for us to do in response to his love his grace and his salvation toward man number one Paul says we need to have a humble heart Ephesians 4 1 through 3 Paul says I therefore the prisoner of the Lord I urge you that you walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all lowliness and meekness and with patience bearing with one another in love endeavoring or eager to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace Our response to what God has done for us and in us is to make sure that we possess a humble heart. Paul says this is called walking worthy. Second Thessalonians two and verse 14 says we've been called by the gospel. And in view of that call, we to live lives that are worthy of that calling, humble lives that reflect the goodness and grace of God in our lives. First Thessalonians two and verse 12 says God has called us into his kingdom and glory. And our response to that. Is to live a life of humility before God. Notice the way Paul describes it in verse 2. He mentions three things. With all lowliness, 
and with meekness and long suffering or with gentleness and patience. Paul is saying we need to see ourselves properly in response to all that God has done for us. It echoes a passage in Philippians chapter two, one through four, where Paul says, if therefore there be any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the spirit, fulfill ye my joy that you be like minded, being of the same mind, one accord, one love. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think soberly. There's much for us to do for God with our hands, but we can't lift a finger to do any of it until we do what is necessary first with our hearts. Matthew 5 and verse 3, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Paul says, before you think about doing anything for God, everybody that's saved and in Christ needs to have a humble heart. There's a story told about Ulysses S. Grant, our 18th president of the United States. One day he was headed to the White House for a reception held in his honor. He got caught in a rainstorm along the way. And as he was making his journey, he saw another man that was traveling the same way. He shared his umbrella with the man. The man says he had never met Mr. Grant before. He didn't know that's who was sharing the umbrella with him. He says, I'm going to this reception because I've heard a lot about Mr. Grant. But personally, I've never been impressed with the general. To which Ulysses responded, me either. And until we have that same response, we realize that we're overrated and yet not undervalued by God. We'll never be what God wants us to be in doing our part. Romans 12 and verse three, Paul says, I say through the grace given to me to everyone that is among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to deal soberly as God has dealt to every man. The measure of faith, our part in response to what God has done is having a humble heart. It doesn't mean we hate ourselves, but we don't lift ourselves up as if it's truly all about us. You know, for all of our advancement intellectually and in technology, there's still one dilemma nobody can overcome. Nobody can tell you what you're supposed to be doing when other people are singing happy birthday to you. They don't know what you're supposed to do. Should you sing along happy birthday to yourself? Do you just sit there and awkwardly smile? Do you stare at the cake and the candles and wait for it to all be over? All of the attention focused on us and we don't know what to do with it. And Paul says that same awkwardness ought to cover our hearts in Christianity. When all the attention's on us, we ought to point it back to Jesus Christ. It's really not about us. With all lowliness and meekness and long suffering, we ought to always feel uneasy when it's pointed to us in Christianity. Our part first is a humble heart. What does that mean? It means I approach Christianity as a student and not as an expert. It means I encourage and lift up other people who may not be as far along in their spiritual journey as I am. It makes me to realize that I still have other things to do, to learn and to grow, avail myself to every opportunity to do so. First Thessalonians 5:11, build one another up and encourage one another just as you're doing. And as Neil mentioned, our seminar is going to be an exercise in that very thing and give us an opportunity to do it. And our part is to have a humble heart and to say, you know what? I'm not through growing. I, he may talk about some things I've learned before that I might think that I already know, but there's still opportunity for me to develop. Now, here's the second one. Our part is to make sure that we hold to the truth. In verses four through six, Paul says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called and the one hope that belongs to your calling. One Lord, one faith and one baptism. I love how dogmatic Paul is about these things. Paul doesn't apologize for them, give any caveats. He just launches into these seven tenets of our faith, the seven ones without apology, as if they're all true because they are. He says there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called and one hope of your calling. And our response to what God has done is to hold fast to these seven tenets of faith, to hold fast to these things that are eternally true. 
Our part is to develop these things and to hone them and to enhance our appreciation of them as we journey in our Christian life. And so Second Peter three and verse 18 would say that Christians are to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to hold fast to the doctrine that's been delivered to us, that pattern of teaching. Second Timothy one and verse 13. All of the things that Paul mentions, by the way, in verses four through six have been mentioned throughout the book of Ephesians already, or at least alluded to. He says there's one body. That's the one church that Paul refers to in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, where he says that God exalted Christ for that purpose, for the church's benefit. There's one one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit that Christians have received as a down payment of their eternal inheritance. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. There's the one glorious hope that he mentions in Ephesians 1 in verse 18 that we inherit as co-heirs of Jesus Christ. There's one Lord. That's Jesus. One faith. The one system of New Testament Christianity that everybody in the world must submit to and ascribe to. There's one baptism, our entrance into that saved relationship with God. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. And there's one glorious God and father of it all. Ephesians 1, 17. And Paul says our response to what God has done, our part is to hold to it and to never let it go. In 2005, there was a documentary released by a man named Rupert Murray. It was about his friend named Doug Bruce, who was in Coney Island, New York in 2003, and he claims to have just had an unusual occasion of amnesia. Maybe you've seen the documentary. It was put up for several awards, put up for several, several movie awards. Many people doubt the story. Mr. Bruce says that he just on a whim lost his memory, suffered from what some doctors call retrograde amnesia. He says he forgot everything immediately and couldn't remember anything. But the more people talked to him, the more he loved to talk about having forgotten everything and they doubt his story. I don't know how long you've been a Christian, but maybe you say to yourself, that'll never happen to me. You know, Hiram, I grew up in the church. I've been here in the seven one so long. I'll never just up and forget these things. I've known these truths for so long. They're so ingrained in my mind. I really don't need to rehearse these things. Paul's not telling the Ephesians what they don't already know. He's telling them what they must never forget. And so it is with us. If we're going to do our part, we need to make sure that we hold fast to the truth and that we never let it go. This is the good news of the gospel of Mark one and verse 15. And our responsibility is to take this truth and to share it with everybody in the world. You know, our world is one that is filled with relativism. Everybody thinks that they can be right about everything, even if we disagree. And then Paul shows up and says there is objective truth. There is truth that everybody in the world must submit to and hold fast to. And it's our responsibility to make sure that we echo that truth and share it with the world. Paul says, here are the seven tenets of our faith, the seven ones, not exhaustive, but we can't be justified with God if we let these things go. Here's number three. Our part is to make sure that we handle the gifts that God has given to us properly. In verse seven, Paul talks about the grace that is given to each one of us. He had mentioned this previously in Ephesians three and verse two and Ephesians three and verse seven. The grace of Ephesians four and verse seven isn't the grace about salvation. It's the grace of the miraculous spiritual gifts that God had given to his people. And to further this claim in verse eight, he quotes from Psalm 68 and verse 18 about Jesus who ascended on high and led a host of captives along with him. And Jesus is the one who descended to earth and ascended to heaven. But when Jesus went back to heaven, we no longer have his physical presence, but we would have the gifts that he left us behind to accomplish his work. Notice verse 11 in the offices that Paul mentions. He says he left some to be apostles, others prophets, others evangelists, shepherds and teachers. Why did he give those gifts in verse 11, though? Verse 12 tells us why. For the work of the ministry of the saints, to equip the saints for the ministry. 
and for the building up of the body of Christ. You know, our part in the work of God's ministry is to make sure that we use the gifts that he's given to us properly. This verse, verse 12 especially, says to us that God doesn't equip us with gifts, with leaders and with insight for our own benefit. Those that are equipped aren't to do the ministry for the saints, but to equip the saints in order to see that they do the ministry. God wants us to use the gifts and talents he's given us to his good and glory. Verse 11, some of those are miraculous. Some of them remain with us today, but all of them are spectacular. God's saying, here are the things I've given you so that you can accomplish the work that I've given you to do. In a unique occasion in the Old Testament, there's Moses in Numbers 11, and he complains about the people of God complaining to him in Numbers 11:25. And God pours out his spirit and 70 elders prophesy. And Joshua comes to Moses and says, hey, would you get these folks to stop doing your job? And Moses says in Numbers 11:29, I wish all of Israel could prophesy. Now, maybe Moses is exaggerating, but his point is, I want everybody in Israel to be equipped to do something for God. Maybe you've seen show houses or show rental properties to the untrained eye. You walk in those places. They're furnished. And what they're trying to do is your respect, prospective buyer or renter. They're trying to say, if you buy one of these or rent one of these places, it'll look something like this. But the reality is nobody lives there. Nothing goes on there except people just walking in, pointing out things, looking at things on occasion. But there's really no activity involved whatsoever. God's not interested in show congregations where we just look like, hey, this is what a church would look like. We've got a building. We've got books. We've got Bibles. We've got elders and preachers. We've got all the stuff that you would expect if a church really was getting on with business. No, on the contrary, God doesn't want us to just look like we know our part, but that we actually get out and do our part. We're to be equipped for the ministry of the saints. As Paul told Timothy, the things you've heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Our part is to be equipped and then do the ministry. This says to every person in a leadership position in the church, beware of doing all of the ministry yourself. But it also says to those that are being led, once we're equipped, it's our responsibility to do the ministry. And our seminar coming up next week is an opportunity to be equipped to do the ministry, to find our place. Paul says in Romans 12 and verse 6, having different gifts according to the grace given to us, let us use them. It does no good to talk about all that we have and all that we're capable of if we don't get out and do something with it and use them. Our part is to be equipped, to look at your own heart and say, okay, what can I do for Jesus' sake? You know, we've got a long list of all the things we can't do, maybe because of talent, age, giftedness, our duration in Jesus Christ. Forget about that list. Think about this list. What can I do for Jesus Christ? That's the first question. And then the second question is, am I doing it? Here's the fourth and final thing that is our part in response to what God has done. It is to head towards spiritual maturity. Paul says we're to be equipped for the working of ministry. Ephesians chapter four and verse 12 and verse 13 says we do this until we all come to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the son of God, to a mature manhood in Jesus Christ. God wants us to grow up into spiritual maturity. Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 1:28, this is a part of his preaching. His goal was to present every convert mature in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1:28. He told the Corinthians, be children in evil, but in in manhood or in spiritual matters, be mature. First Corinthians 14 and verse 20. We're to know the truth. We're to have a humble heart. We're to exercise our gifts and continue to press on towards spiritual maturity. 
Maybe you have one of these in your house. People have these markings on their wall. If you've got children and grandchildren, why do people do that? They want to mark the height. And maybe you've seen this before. Johnny at this age was this. One thing I've never seen in all of those markings, nobody has a marking for every day. Most people don't. Their wall would look like a New York subway or something. It'd be told nobody has that. You know why people don't have a marking for every day? Because we really don't grow like that. I mean, what you do is you mark maybe a year, you mark six months, and then you turn around and somebody's grown four inches. That's how it happens. And Christianity, beware of just watching your marker every single day. Paul says, just do the spiritual work. Use your gifts. And over time, the maturity will happen. Woe to the Christian who's been in Christ for decades and still feasting on the milk of the word. We're born into Jesus Christ as babes. First Peter two and verse two. But Paul says we're to grow to spiritual maturity. First Corinthians three, one through three. God's idea is that his people would head towards spiritual maturity. Maybe you remember this, the face app of 2017, this is when this launched. Artificial intelligence, you could hold your phone up to this app and really doesn't matter how old you were. They would show you a projection of what you look like in years to come. Some people did this and they really liked the way they look. Other people said, whoa, it's going to be rough in a few years. <laughs> Some people thought, I hope that this app proves right and I hope I look like this. Some people said, I don't have anybody in my family who's aged like this. This app was designed to show the progression of how people would look in time to come. What if all of us, what if I was standing up here with my phone and all of us could take a congregational selfie? And if FaceApp could do this for the church at Lehman, Cumberland Trace Church of Christ, it could show us what we're going to look like in the years to come, how we're going to age spiritually. What do you think about yourself as an individual? What do we think about ourselves collectively as a congregation? None of us know the future. Paul's admonition to us would be this. Take care of yourself in such a way that you will love your future self. Take care of yourself in such a way spiritually that you won't be surprised with the person that you'll meet in the distant future, because the reality is we are what we're becoming. There really won't be any spiritual surprises. Paul says, you know, you're growing. If you're in verse 14, not being tossed around by every doctrine. Verse 15, you're learning how to graciously speak the truth in love. Everything about you is growing up into the person of Jesus Christ in verse 16. And every part of the body is doing its work perfectly. We won't be ashamed. We won't be torn away by what we meet in the future. We'll meet the person that we've been preparing to meet all of our lives. Some things take two parts. And everybody in salvation, in this process of salvation, has a part. God has his part, and he always does his part perfectly and flawlessly. He sent Jesus into the world to die for the sins of humanity. Jesus did just that, but when Jesus ascended, he left us with a responsibility. Not only to take the gospel into all the world, that's true, but our responsibility is also to bring glory to God by living the way that he would have us to. We do that by humbling our hearts, realizing we don't deserve the attention and glory God does. By holding to the truth and reminding ourselves, no matter what changes in this world, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. By using the gifts properly that God has given us and saying to ourselves, God doesn't want to show congregation. He wants a congregation that shows the world how it's done. And then by saying we want to head towards spiritual maturity because there's a grave difference between aging and maturity. One happens regardless of what you do, but the other only happens when you prepare for it, when you're ready for it and when you intend to do so. Maybe tonight, today you need to respond to God's part. Dwight read that we're saved by grace through faith. Grace is God's part. Faith is man's part. If you need to respond to that this morning, trusting in Jesus as the Savior, clinging to the one faith revealed from eternity's past but preserved for us, and undergo the one baptism that washes away all your sins and puts you in Jesus Christ, we love to assist you or be witnesses to that. 
if you've done that already and you need the prayers of the church, if you need our encouragement in any way, David's going to lead us in a song to encourage us. Come now as together we stand and as we sing.